I, I sometimes think that all of us have a word or uh, uh, a description that we hope most doesn't apply to us, some flaw or some trait that hits us at a real deep emotional level that we would like to think is not true, but are, are secretly afraid that it is. And for me, that word would be the word weak. I have always admired fearless, courageous people, strength of character, people that are deeply authentic, um, who bring a fighting spirit to life, who just say whatever is on their minds. And I wish I was more that way. Uh, There's not much that I hate more than the fear or sometimes the knowledge that I am weak. Partly that can be a physical thing. Some people are born with bodies that are just genetically pre-wired for strength. I was not. When I was a freshman in high school, I was six feet tall, and I weighed 120 pounds and was pale as a ghost. One summer day, our high school group went to the beach, and I took my shirt off, and the comments were unpleasant enough that I quickly decided I was never going to go through that again. One of the ways that I knew Nancy was the person for me was when the thought occurred to me one day, I think if I went to the beach with her, I could take my shirt off. (laughs) For one thing, she's a kind person and would never humiliate anybody. For another thing, I knew she genuinely liked me and was attracted to me. For another thing, we had been married five years (laughs) and it seemed like it was about time. It's a strange thing my weakness is real, and it's more than physical, and I often find that I want to hide it. I want to pretend it's not true. I want to pretend that I am stronger than I am. But there's no healing in hiding. So what if there was a place where we could go and actually reveal our weakness and inadequacy, and instead of shame, we would experience acceptance and and love and healing and even some strength. So, I'll just let you know up front, this is a message from a weak person to weak people. We mostly love messages that tell us our abilities are remarkable, our circumstances will get better, determination will always prevail. This is not that message. I will tell you up front, if your life is going great today, if your marriage is effort-free, they keep promoting you at work, Northwestern is begging for your kids to apply, your cat is grateful and affectionate, strangers tell you you should be in an infomercials for how to get great abs, this message is not for you. But for the rest of us who live in a world where our families get shattered, where marriage crumbles, or the diagnosis is really hard, or the betrayal at work, or disappointment in a friendship blindsides you, or you come to church but you can't make the anxiety or depression go away, or that hidden habit or secret addiction defeated you again yesterday. This is for you, and I want today to invite you to join me in what might be called the Fellowship of the Withered Hand. I was first introduced to it now 35 years ago. Another young pastor I didn't know well previously, his name was Paul. He and I had been invited to speak for two days to a small group of pastors in Ethiopia. Now, at this time, Ethiopia was uh, still under a Marxist dictator, Colonel Mengistu. 
who would later be found guilty of genocide of up to two million people, including the head of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. So churches met underground those days. Church leaders were often imprisoned. I was told when I got there that Christians would refer to the prison as the university because that's where their leaders often experience the most growth and learning. That's where God would really grow them up. So those two days had an intensity unfamiliar to me. Paul and I took turns speaking starting early in the morning for 90 minutes until bedtime in a very cramped, crowded, sweating room. And at the end of those two days, Paul spoke in the final session about a story told three times in the New Testament, a story about a man with a withered hand. And Paul's primary point was about the man's weakness and inadequacy. We are not told in Scripture whether the man was born this way or suffered some injury. One ancient commentary says that he was a mason and so could not practice his trade. In Luke chapter 6, we're told it was his right hand that was shriveled. Uh, In the ancient world, that would be his most important hand, the hand of agency, the hand that made work possible. Possibly he was a beggar. Possibly no woman would ever want to marry him. He was attending synagogue, so he was a person of faith. He would have known the stories in the Old Testament scriptures about healing. There's even one in the book of 1 Kings about a man having a useless shriveled hand that was restored. Why not him? He had surely prayed for this. Nothing. Most of the people who receive healing in the New Testament come to Jesus and ask, a leper, or a man with an epileptic son, or a blind man named Bartimaeus who shouted so loudly they tried to shut him up and they couldn't. The man with the withered hand didn't ask for anything. And we don't know why. Maybe he was too polite. Maybe he was shy. Maybe he doubted. As you all know, what was considered deformity in the ancient world came with a stigma, as being differently abled still does in our day. Maybe God was punishing him. I imagine him sitting there in that synagogue, hiding his shriveled hand in his robe. It was his shame. He would hope that nobody would notice that. But somebody did. And to make matters worse, that somebody was Jesus, the rabbi. And to make matters worse, in Luke 6, verse 8, Jesus says, get up and stand in front of everyone. Not just get up, not just get up and stand. Get up and stand in front of everyone, Jesus says. In other words, expose your shame. Reveal the ugliness you try to hide. Jesus deliberately calls the man to do this in front of all the people. And the man sits there for a moment with his lifeless hand twisted inside his sleeve, the one thing he doesn't want anybody to see. And then the text says, so he got up and stood there. We don't know for how long. Everybody is staring at him, this man that Jesus pointed out, staring at his hand. Worse yet, the people he most wanted not to be there are there. Healthy-handed religious people with strong right hands that they use to greet each other and do important work and shake their healthy right index fingers at the sinners and the shamed. A church service was the last place he would want to expose his withered hand. 
And Jesus knew this. He knew how religion, the search for God, can wither people's hearts sometimes and make them proud and exclusive and judgmental and unloving. And even here, many leaders would be opposed to Jesus helping this man because it was the Sabbath and they valued rule keeping above people helping. One of the versions tells us that this made Jesus deeply indignant, deeply angry. I think about this sometimes. In the ancient world, sometimes in our day, communities of faith tend to exclude people that have a stigma, a physical stigma, uh, legal, the criminal, sexually marginalized, people that are emotionally or mentally troubled. Jesus attracted stigmatized people like a magnet. In fact, you may know, uh, stigma is a Greek word. It's a New Testament word. Paul uses it the one time it's used. He says, I bear in my body the marks of Christ that is suffering, that is persecution. In the history of the church, the stigmata, the signs of the nails that were piercing Jesus' hands that marked him as a failed Messiah, a criminal who was executed by the state, that became the ultimate uh, expression of the presence of God. I don't know why it is that Jesus drew stigmatized people to him, and sometimes in the churches, it's the last place where people feel at home. Jesus speaks a second time, but now for the man, things get even worse. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. This was the one thing the man with the withered hand would most want not to do. You don't go to synagogue to expose what you're most ashamed of. Not just that, this was the one thing that the man with the withered hand could not do. It's part of what it meant to have what was called a withered hand. He had tried a million times. A child could do it. He couldn't. His will was somehow unable to make the right neurons fire. Jesus drew attention to the man's shame and inadequacy and weakness. And why don't you have enough faith? Couldn't you just pray and have God heal you? And It was the man's weakness that would become the hinge of his story and the turning point of his life. He was asked to do the one thing he could not do. And he must have thought to himself in that moment, my whole life has been centered around managing my withered hand, covering it up, keeping it hidden, figuring out how to navigate life without that. And now it's all undone. This is the worst moment of my life. Until it wasn't. That's the story of the man with the withered hand. And over and over and over again, in that hot, dark, sweaty, crowded room, Paul kept saying, Jesus asked the man to do the very thing the man could not do. Stretch out your hand, stretch out your hand, stretch out your hand. And then Paul said, that's the way it is with us. God asks us to do what we know we ought to do. What God asks us to do is what we're precisely unable to do. We're so weak. It was so striking to me in that little room, Paul did not try to inspire those pastors by praising their strength. He didn't say, you can defy this Marxist regime and withstand persecution and overcome poverty and save a country. He said, Jesus is asking you to do what you cannot do. Stretch out your hand. And then the strangest thing happened. I did not expect this. 
those leaders, those pastors began to cry. And they began to pray, just spontaneously. They got up out of their chairs and they began to confess. They talked about how afraid they were of the government and of being arrested and of jail. They spoke of their jealousies of other people's ministries or their families or their children or their bodies. They spoke of their deep inadequacy. They talked about how disappointed they were in their bickering little churches. And all of a sudden, healing and reconciliation and hope and courage broke out in that room. And this went on deep into the night, and they would not go home. I hadn't seen a service like that. In the States, that doesn't happen. When the church service is over and people know you're supposed to leave, they leave fast to beat the other cars out of the parking lot. That's how you know you won when you went to church. They wouldn't leave. Because what came into that room was power, and we all knew it. But it did not come through giftedness or training or inspiration as good as those things are. It came in weakness. It came when people felt a need so great that suddenly they found they had nothing to lose and nothing to hide. It came in the honest confession of ugliness, fear, and shame. It came into the fellowship of the withered hand. Don't know why it works this way, but it does. Paul and I talked afterwards about how the best thing that happened on that trip happened more in spite of us than because of us. We had been asked uh, by this church leadership group to smuggle in 50 large, expensive, illegal study Bibles for church leaders. This is back before the internet, so getting a physical Bible is the only way you'd be able to learn. I was given an extra one before leaving my home church, so it was actually 51. When my plane was landing in Addis Ababa, I remember thinking I had never taken a class in smuggling when I was in seminary. They don't cover that at Fuller. And I got a little nervous about smuggling something illegal into the country. One suitcase full of Bibles, one of them was confiscated at the airport. And the leader of the little group that we were there for was summoned to the airport. The customs official took him into his office and closed the door and said that they had found those Bibles. So we knew that was trouble, didn't know what the consequence was going to be, very possibly a bribe. And the customs official said he would release all the Bibles on one condition, and the bribe he requested was that he be allowed to keep one Bible for himself. So they wanted 50 Bibles. We took over 51. The extra one ended up in the hands of a Marxist customs official of a genocidal dictator. After a year or so, Paul and I had lost touch with each other. But I never forgot his message or what happened that night. And I've learned a lot more about the fellowship of the withered hand in the last few years of my own life. I was telling this story not long ago to a small group of pastors, and one of them stopped me. I know Paul, he said. Paul had been my best friend for many, many years, and then went on to tell me how Paul had just recently died. Was at a gathering, and his chair tipped over, fluke accident, broke his neck and died. And it made me wish I had been able to thank Paul for what I learned from him so many years ago and to grieve for his family and his church. It was another chapter of pain in a suffering world where there is so much I don't understand. We're just not in control of anything, not even our own lives, though we think we are. Then I wonder when I think about the story, 
why did Jesus make the man stand up in front of everybody? Because then he did heal him. The man got a gift that he never expected. Why didn't Jesus heal him privately, offline? Why make this man's weakness so transparent to everybody there? Nobody wants that. And I think maybe part of it is that Jesus was wanting to begin a new kind of community where people who are needy and people who are imperfect and people who are thought to be deformed and people who bear a stigma are particularly celebrated. That shame can be hidden or it can be healed, but not both. There was never anybody like this man. So stretch out your hand. Many, many years ago now, I decided I would like to have a friend before whom I have no secrets, where everything in my life I have confessed to him. So I'd known my friend Rick for about a decade by this point. We'd gone to grad school together, and I asked him, would he be willing to hear a confession? And he said, yes, he would. So I actually spent several weeks remembering, writing stuff down, preparing, and then I met with Rick, and it took quite a while, and I walked him through... uh, all the stuff that I most never wanted to tell anybody, my emotional and relational, marriage life, my life as a dad, uh, my sex life, my financial failures, lies, cheatings, jealousy. By the time it was done, I was so embarrassed I could not stand to look at him. I just had my eyes down here. And I'll never forget what Rick said to me. He said, John, I have never loved you more than I love you right now. And it felt so good, I wanted to make up more bad things to tell him. <laughs> Just to hear that kind of acceptance and love. And, and what I came to understand through this is, I can only be loved to the extent that I'm known. Because if part of me is unknown to you, you might say, that you love me, but inside inevitably I will think, yeah, but if you knew this about me, I can only, we can only be loved to the extent that we are known. We can only be fully loved if we are fully known. He has been my friend now for uh, over 40 years, and we call each other uh, pretty much every morning during the week at 6.50 a.m. and talk about how did yesterday go? What temptations did you face? Where did you fail? What are you going through today? Where do you need somebody to pray for you? Uh, I asked him recently, I I hadn't thought about this for many, many years, um, what prompted you to say those words to me? When I told you what I was so embarrassed of and I felt so ashamed, what prompted you to say you had never loved me more? And what he told me was, Part of what I wrestle with, I'm a three on the Enneagram, if any of you know about that. It's like, uh, my, so my idol is achievement and impressing people and looking good. And I'll do those things because I think it'll get people to like me. But of course, it actually pushes people away. And it would with Rick. And he, so he said, you know, when you were just fully open with me and I could see your weakness and, and your inadequacy and I knew that you trusted, that my heart just went out to you like it never had before. So ironic that the very things that I think I do that are gonna draw people to me, push people away. It is the community, the fellowship of the withered hand. So maybe you would like to ask God today to help you find a friend like that. James 5.16, so interesting, says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you might be healed. 
Something about confession, being known, and healing spiritually is connected. Now, it takes time to find somebody like that. So don't go up to a stranger today and say, want to hear my darkest secret? You have to go one step at a time, discern their character, build trust, make sure they respond to you in uh, appropriate ways, not judgmental, that they're not gossipers. But I know that church cannot be a church when people are hiding, and it kills people. And sometimes people do that year after year, decade after decade in churches. And I think how Jesus must be pained by that. Maybe this is the day for you to stretch out your hand with a trusted brother or sister about a, a, some kind of secret thing you've been carrying around a long time. I've been studying a lot uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, AA, and one of the things that happens when you walk into a meeting, if you speak, is you begin by saying, my name is John, I'm an alcoholic. Stretch out my hand, here's my weakness, here's my problem. And people respond by saying, hi, John. My friend Mike says that in this fellowship, the worse your story, the warmer you're welcome. What a community. Where'd that idea come from? A writer, a Christian philosopher named Kent Dunnington in a wonderful book called Addiction and Virtue says one of the secrets in AA is they have discovered that the recognition and public confession of inadequacy is itself a spiritual achievement that must be ritualized and celebrated. Isn't that fabulous? I want to say that one more time. They have discovered that the recognition and public confession of inadequacy is itself a spiritual achievement that must be ritualized and celebrated. So Christ Church, welcome to the celebration of personal inadequacy. Welcome to the fellowship of the withered hand. My name is John. I'm a sinner. Now that's a chance for you all to say, hi, John. So you're not just leaving me vulnerable and unaccepted here. Let's try it one more time. My name is John. I'm a sinner. Because that's, that's, that's all of us. That's all of us. We're all carrying the stigma, carrying the We all are. And the church ought to be the first place where we bring that. It ought to be a celebration of personal inadequacy every week because the recognition and public confession of personal inadequacy is itself a spiritual achievement. And there's great power in it. This man had no idea on the day that he went to the synagogue that it was his weakness that would enable him to be part of a story that we would be remembered and celebrated and inspire faith and hope 2,000 years later on the other side of the world. But here we are. I think maybe another reason why this guy's story went so public is that we're all really like him. It's just that some of us are better at hiding our withered hands. And for some reason, until we are driven by des to desperate need by our own powerlessness, we are stuck with what only our own power can do, and we are not meant to live under our own power. Author Richard Rohr wrote, until you bottom out and come to the limits of your own fuel supply, there is no reason for you to switch to a higher octane of fuel. Until and unless there is a person, situation, event, idea, conflict, or relationship that you cannot manage, you will never find the true manager. So God makes sure that several things will come your way that you cannot manage on your own. You may be sitting right next to that unmanageable reality in your life right now. And that's why God said, my strength is made perfect 
in weakness. What a strange thing to say. When I was finishing uh, going to graduate school at Fuller, I had to decide between becoming a psychologist, that's what most of my work was in, and being a pastor, but I found when I was doing therapy, people kept getting more and more unhealthy the longer they saw me, which isn't a good thing. But then I started to work as a pastor at this church, First Baptist Church at La Crescenta, and started to preach, and there'd be moments when I felt so alive, like, God, I think this is what you're calling me to do. Until one day, I got up to preach, and the sermon wasn't going real well, and I was five or ten minutes into it, and I started to feel kind of dizzy, and the next thing I knew, I had fainted dead away on the floor of the church. There's a lot going on in my life. Uh, Finals were coming up at grad school. Nance and I were about to get married, so I thought, well, it's just kind of an unusual thing. Uh, We spent a year overseas and then came back. I went back to work at the church and going through Fuller. The very next time I got up to preach, it happened again. And to make it work, this was worse, this was a Baptist church, not a charismatic church where you get credit for doing that kind of thing. (laughs) And uh, uh, I knew that I really wanted to preach and felt called to it, but you cannot preach if you faint on a regular basis. It (laughs) makes people nervous. Increased attendance for a little while because it was just kind of interesting for people to, you know, bet on it or something. I don't know. Um, the, I asked God to take it away, asked him over and over again. Makes me feel weak. You know, I want some kind of explanation for this that won't make me feel so vulnerable. And God did not take it away. But the, the text that I lived with, some of you will know this, Paul writes it in his letter to the church at Corinth. Um, Uh, where he asks God to take away what he calls his thorn in the flesh. And God doesn't do that, but God does answer his prayer. He says, for my grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is made perfect, and that kept me going. That was 40 years ago now. And I still get that feeling sometimes. Not right now, so don't look nervous, but sometimes I do. But God has kept me upright now for 40 years. So, what's your shriveled hand? What is it that you cannot do? What is the shame that you want to hide inside the long sleeves of your robe? And the reason we meet here is not to learn how to fix it or solve it or clever principles to manage it. It's to name it. I used to think, without ever reflecting on it very much, that I can mostly know what needs to be done in life. I can do a job. I can grow an organization. I can raise a family. I can do the dad thing. And I've come to realize I cannot. I can't fix my family. I can't fix my heart. I can't fix my anxious, resentful mind. I can't make my fear go away. I can't make my sadness go away. I don't mean that I used to not be able to do those things, but now I'm strong and everything's okay and I will share with you the secret. I mean, I cannot do it. And I need some community to come to. You may know that 
12 steps of AA are all taken very much from a Christian background. I won't take the time to go through that, but they are. The first one is the recognition of personal inadequacy. Admitted we were powerless over our problem, our lives had become unmanageable. And then the second is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And then the third one is a decision decided to turn our lives and wills over to the care of God. Sometimes those three steps are summarized in these three phrases, I can't, God can, I think I'll let him. That's really this message, I can't, God can, I think I'll let him. What I can do is to tell God, God, I need your help. And that's where we start. And somehow, for reasons I don't fully understand, finding other people in the same desperate condition, our mutual weakness releases a kind of spiritual power. So, this is the fellowship of the withered hands. All it is. Maybe that's your grief. Maybe it's a loss you feel like you can't recover from. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's a failure. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe you are old and carry a desperate regret that you can't take it back. Maybe you are young and you got a huge fear. We come together today as the fellowship of the withered hand. So here's the word for today. Stretch out your hand. That's what a little child does. It's a sign of universal asking for help. Uh, Nancy and I became grandparents not too long ago. Any grandparents here in the room? Isn't that a wonderful thing to be a grandparent? If I'd have known how good that was, I'd have skipped the kid part going right to being a grandparent. <laughs> a friend of mine explained it to me like this. He said, when we had kids, I realized I would kill for my kids. When I became a grandparent, I realized I would kill my kids for my grandkids. <laughs> it's kind of that way. You see that little body and, and, and those little eyes light up and those little arms go out. We all know what that means. It's like, do you have any idea what that means to the heart of your heavenly father? It's just fellowship of the withered hand. Our father will always be there. Jesus is there. Healing comes when there's openness and weakness and vulnerability in this amazing community that he's starting. Tell you one more story about the Fellowship of the Withered Hand. And uh, this I heard from a woman, Marty Ensign. Uh, she and her husband worked in a medical clinic, in, a medical clinic in Africa for many, many, many years. And she talked about a friend, a uh, young man named Ben Yoni, who grew up there his family was very poor. He loved music. He made a little instrument, kind of like a guitar for himself because they couldn't afford money. He always was singing. Benyoni means little bird. They called him little bird because he would always be making music. Um, uh, some of you remember Carrie Tenboom. When Carrie Tenboom would go to that part of Africa, she always insisted that little Benyoni lead the music because he was such an infectious personality, was able to go to school and became president of his class and then got a job as a teacher and uh, became kind of the headmaster of that school. He's a radiant follower of Jesus. People just love to follow him. But this was during the time of the Rwandan genocide. And one day, a group of young Hutu soldiers came to the school and uh, demanded that Benyoni and his 11 teachers uh, 
leave the school with him. And they all knew what this meant. And Ben Yoni tried to ask them, uh, you know, uh, we're not a political place. Um, please don't hurt the other teachers. They, they haven't done anything to no avail. So, uh, this is a true story. Uh, Marty knew Benioni. They're marching to go beyond the hill, and Benioni stops and asks these soldiers, could I pray for you? They'd never had anybody ask to pray for them, so they didn't know what to say, but they said yes. And he started to pray, and his other teachers were really glad that he was praying because they thought, oh, he's going to pray us out of this because they had great faith in his prayer. But he didn't mostly pray for them. He mostly prayed for the soldiers. He said, God, they're about to do a terrible thing and the guilt will be way too much for them. Could you help them come to know that there is somebody who loves them that will forgive guilt? One of the other teachers uh, begged them, would you kill me first? And Benyoni said, no, 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 no. I'm the leader. They will kill me first and you will see what a glorious thing it is to go into the presence of God. When they finally got to the place where they were to be executed, he had one more request. He said, uh, could I sing a song? And they said, okay. And he began to sing an old, old song. None of you are old enough to know this song, but I do. Um, out of my bondage, sadness, and night, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come. Into your freedom, gladness, and light, Jesus, I come to you. And then the fourth verse, out of my fear and dread of the tomb, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come. Into your joy, your presence, your own, Jesus, I come to you. And then uh, he and all of those young men were executed. And you might wonder, Marty would ask, how do we know this story if they were all killed? What happened was those soldiers went back to their compound and uh, all of them went to a bar to get drunk as fast as they could, except for the lieutenant that led them. And he couldn't get this out of his mind. And he went to a Quaker, old Quaker woman missionary who was there and told her what had happened. And he said, I must know the story of somebody who would be willing to die like that. And she told him about Jesus and his death on the cross that we celebrate at the table this weekend so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And he became a follower of Jesus. And he started Bible studies telling about what had happened in his life. And he was eventually executed. But by that time, the movement had just spread too far. And the story is still spreading. For the fellowship of the withered hand turns out to be the fellowship of the empty tomb. And evil cannot silence it. And death cannot stop it. And it is still receiving applicants. And I hope that you will be one. I hope to meet you there. Stretch out your hand. Would you pray with me? Now, God, you know everybody's story here. You know wherever there is weakness, pain, shame, inadequacy, guilt, despair. I pray that you will meet us, God, at our point where we most need you, at our point of greatest inadequacy, at that place where it's been killing us because we've been hiding for so long. Thank you, God, for Jesus. 
Thank you that he comes to us and he loves us and that you do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Would you do that now in this place, in this moment? I ask in Jesus' name, amen.